Hey, my name is Brian Golden. I'm the lead pastor of Centerpoint Church. And I just want to personally thank you for listening to our podcast. And I also want to invite you wherever you are around the country or in the Tampa Bay area to join our digital online campus at centerpointfl.org. And here's what you need to know. Our vision is to create an alternative to church as usual for all people. And all that means is, regardless of whether you've been a longtime follower of Jesus, you're new to faith, you're investigating faith, or you don't even know what you believe, our goal is for you to feel like you belong, even if you never believe. And so thank you again for listening, and I hope today's message encourages you and helps you. So next two weeks, I'm going to piggyback, um, if you weren't here at the beginning, our incredible times to invite with all we have planned for kids and then five Christmas Eve services over two days. I say this a lot, but a lot of times somebody's um, kind of re-engaging a relationship with Jesus or maybe for the first time or re-engaging the church because they have bad experience um, happens because of a relationship with one of his followers. And so if you've been around here, you know uh, we are not a church for ourselves. We're a church for the city. And so this is an incredible time to not just think about you and celebrating and you know doing your thing, but inviting somebody else into it. So take advantage of the next couple of weeks, get 30 seconds of courage and invite somebody. Um, but um, as I start this series, it's going to last all the way through Christmas Eve. Um, not so Hallmark Christmas. Here's the goal of the series. It's not to make fun of Hallmark Christmas movies, uh, though that will happen. The, the main thing is that I think it just, I think culturally it's worse. I think it's always been there, but there is such pressure with so many of us, and I think it gets worse this time of year, of just trying to maintain these like perfectly curated lives, perfect family, and I think perfect Christmas season. I mean, there's no pressure like there is right now. I mean, like even little things when I grew up, like my parents didn't care how they wrapped stuff. Like they just threw it at us. Sometimes it was still in a Walmart bag. Like it was not, that's probably overstating. It was no big deal. Now there's so much pressure. Everything's gotta be perfect. Everything's gotta be just right. And it kind of gets worse this time of year. And the whole um, Hallmark backdrop, that, the reason we kind of came up with that, have you ever watched Hallmark Christmas movies? Yeah, I, I'm forced to do that as well. But like, you know, the storyline, I mean, it's, Holly, I don't know, where Jingle Bell or whatever, and she rolls into the town as a CEO of a tech startup making seven figures, and she gets there to help save her grandmother's farm, but then when she gets there, she realizes they need her help um, to t- put on their Christmas pageant, and so, um, I don't know if you saw this one, I'm just making it up as I go, but she... <laughs> you know, Christmas pageant. And so she decides to quit her seven-figure job and she's gonna just host the Christmas pageant and save the little farm. And we have no idea how she's gonna make a living, but she just does somehow. Um, and then it gets to the point where she meets the guy that's running the Christmas tree shop for minimum wage, but then somehow he's got a PhD in quantum physics and they <laughs> fall in love and it's happily ever after. It's an amazing thing at the end. And that's literally every plot line, except sometimes it's a bakery, right? And here's the thing, life, and this is why you watch it. I get it. This is what my wife tells me. But life doesn't work that way. Like, it never works out that way. It never goes that way. But I think there's so much pressure. And specifically at this season, I'll never forget our first Christmas with um, our oldest daughter, who's now 11. She was three months at the time. And I love Christmas. I love it even more now that my kids are like in this sweet spot where it is so much fun. But I was so excited when I had my first kid. I'm like, this is gonna be amazing. I get to share this with them. I love this season. And so we had three-month-old Brooke coming into our first Christmas. And I had all of these visions of it's gonna be magical and it's gonna be amazing. Christmas with a three-month-old is never magical. I mean, maybe it was for you. It was not for us. 
And she had like several issues where she, for the first three months, she just didn't sleep. And so I never forget, I was so disappointed because I had all this stuff. I thought it was gonna be so amazing. And no joke, man, we get to Christmas night and she's not sleeping through the night again. And somewhere around 3 a.m., I mean, literally for just a few moments, I'm like, I hate Christmas. <laughs> and right to be honest, I think I was, I was struggling even to celebrate the baby Jesus. Because I'm like, is this what he was like? Like, why did he come as a baby? You know what I mean? <laughs> It's just, it, but it was just anything but magical. It was horrible. It was, she was horrible and she knows that. Like I have permission to tell that story. But the thing is like, that's just life. But then around this time of year, I think all of that can get exaggerated. And in some ways we're just kind of reminded of everything our life is not. And so all of the, you know, relational tension and conflict that's there all year long, suddenly it's, it's just more prevalent. And sometimes we have to see those people. Or it's like the whole dynamic of just disappointment that you're dealing with. Like, this is not where you wanted to be career-wise. Career and for whatever reason, this is the time of year you think about that. Or this is not what you wanted for your adult kid. And this, there's just some stuff that you're just struggling with because I thought I'd be a, at a different place a calendar year away, and I'm just not. Or you're dealing with loneliness because it's the first you know, Christmas or holiday season that you've walked through it without somebody that has been there for a long time. And it, it, like, it's just difficult. And in some cases, there's dysfunction that you're, you're dealing with, and it's other people's dysfunction. Sometimes it's your dysfunction, but it just feels like all of the, the stuff of what life is not just comes to the surface, and it's more in your face than maybe it is any other time of year. And that's why I wanted to call the series this, and, and the reality is I just want to, for a couple weeks, remind you if you don't know, or you know, may, maybe come back to this maybe for the first time in your life to just recognize that the whole message of the Christmas story gives us unbelievable hope because it is as messy as our lives are. And I know a lot of you grew up in like religious systems or churches where we airbrush the whole thing and you shave off the rough edges and you romanticize people, make them better than they are. You just don't see that in the scripture. The entire Christmas story is messy. It's dysfunctional. It is, there's a lot of rough edges. Like there's some stuff that's just uncomfortable and yet it is the message. And I actually think it's the part that's worth leaning into because it's the thing that gives our stories hope in all of its messiness and all the ways that it's not what you want it to be. And in the midst of all of that, God shows up and does something. Because maybe you know this, like the whole story that usually we start at like the storybook, you know, um, place of, you know, baby in a manger, it starts way before. It doesn't start with, you know, a couple who's not sure they can't have a baby. It starts with a couple who's sure that they'll never be able to have a baby or get pregnant. And it doesn't start with, you know, a couple that's not sure where they're gonna be able to give birth. It starts with a couple that feels like that God has abandoned them and it's never gonna happen. And it doesn't even start with angels that show up to shepherds in a field. That's not where the story begins. It actually begins all the way back in Genesis where the dominoes start being, you know, start falling and God begins to unpack everything he's gonna do in the world and everything he's gonna do through the generations where God shows up to one guy by the name of Abraham and he makes Abraham a promise that somehow Abraham, and honestly with little information and not a lot of clarity, Abraham somehow decided to just believe God. And yet after that, you're gonna see like dysfunction and family mess and Abraham lie. And you gotta think that if it was us and you were God, you'd be like, maybe I made the promise to the wrong guy. I mean, the whole thing is anything but storybook, but God shows up and does something 2000 and about 90 years before the Christmas story as we know it ever begins. And he comes this dude, Abraham. He's like, I'm gonna make you a promise and it's gonna change the world. And really in its context, the promise was unbelievable. Unbelievable. 
it was kind of, at the moment it was given, it was almost kind of incoherent. And it was really impossible to believe if you were in the moment. It was like, it, it was a promise that you can't ever see how God would fulfill it. And yet, as you understand the backstory of Christmas, what is unbelievable starts to make a ton of sense. Now, here's the thing. You hear me say this a lot. The reason that we believe the Christmas story really has nothing to do with the baby in the manger. It has everything to do with historically about almost every secular thinker will not doubt the fact that Jesus actually did. There was a time where they did too much evidence to the contrary now. Um, don't, you know, obviously they don't believe or they, they don't disprove that the fact that he died. And then we believe historically, and if you're a skeptic, this is the place to start, that he rose from the dead. And you hear me say it all the time. If somebody rises from the dead, it validates everything that they said. The reason that we believe the Christmas story is not because of the Bible, not even because of what happened in a manger, because ultimately Jesus lived, died, rose from the dead. And that's the thing that honestly validates everything else. It, it even overshadows how he got here. You can grapple with all of that. If a dude rises from the dead, you gotta take him seriously. And when you begin to understand the backstory of Christmas, what is kind of incoherent, impossible, even unbelievable, suddenly becomes staggeringly believable. Now, here's the thing, because so many this time of year, uh, we, and we have a lot, this a lot at our church, but our, you're investigating, you've got questions, you're skeptical. Many of you are listening via unfiltered radio from West Palm to Gainesville and beyond podcast-wise. So I know a lot of you are tuning in. So I just want to say this for a second. If you could just suspend your disbelief for a moment, if you're in that category, I don't want you to think Bible as I read in Genesis, just a second, where this whole story begins, because I get there's a lot of questions about Genesis. I want you to think about ancient document preserved for 3,000 plus years, which you should just investigate that for a little bit. It was copied, it was preserved. People gave their lives for it to preserve it throughout the generations. And we do not believe that Genesis exists because of the Bible. And this is an important clarification. We believe it exists because God did something in history that changed everything and eventually it was worth documenting and people died for it. It was included in the Jewish scriptures. And so when Jesus makes this promise, here's what the author of Genesis writes in Genesis 12, 1, that the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your people and your father's household to a land that I'm gonna show you. And so God shows up to this one guy in history and he's like, I'm gonna do something significant through you. And here's the thing, we don't really know why God chose Abraham. We just know he had to choose somebody from somewhere and he chose Abraham. And what you see all throughout the scripture is, I know we romanticize Abraham. And at times he was a man of extraordinary faith. He's included in Hebrews chapter 11. There's other times in his life he's very relatable and he's not that great. And you see that story all throughout the scripture of messy, dysfunctional, don't believe, abandoned God for a season and yet was part of the story of God. And so God comes to him knowing everything that Abraham was gonna do because here's the thing that God so often is interested in. You see this throughout the scripture. He's more interested in your availability than he is your ability. Because if God was gonna use people who are worthy of being used, all of us would be on the outside. And so he comes to Abraham and it's such an extraordinary part because he's like, Abraham, I want you to leave your country. I want you to leave your family, your territory, your tribe, everything you know. And this was the promise. Go and I'll tell you when you get there. Like that's the promise. And here's what God says to Abraham in verse two. I'm gonna make you a great, what? Let's try that one more time. I'm gonna make you a what? Nation. And Abraham, just context, maybe some of you know, he's 75 years old. There's no medical, you know, modern advancements. 
And one person got that. But Abraham's like, listen, I would just settle at 75 if you made me a a father or a grandfather. The whole idea of a great nation seems a little far-fetched. But God says, I'm gonna make you into a great nation and I'm gonna bless you and I'm gonna make your name great. And again, Abraham's like, what? Like, I'm leaving everything I know. Like, I am more likely to be forgotten than I am to be famous. And yet God's like, no, no, you're gonna be famous. People are gonna be talking about you 2,000 years from now and you're gonna be a blessing. And again, incoherent. In an ancient world, just go with me for a second. In an ancient world where nobody blessed anybody else, there was nothing but violence and corruption. And Abraham's like, I'm gonna be a blessing in a culture in an ancient world that doesn't even know about blessing. And I will bless, verse three, those who bless you and I will curse whoever curses you. And translation is basically God saying to this one guy in history, what I'm telling you is just gonna happen. And there's gonna be moments if you were on the outside of the store and you were looking in and you had your way, you would think, well, maybe God made a mistake and maybe he should have chosen somebody else other than Abraham and Abraham's family and the nation that comes from them. But God has made a promise and nothing is going to thwart my promise. At this moment, this is such a big deal for the whole Christmas story. This is an in spite of promise that God's just gonna do it. And then comes the unbelievable kind of incoherent and just like impossible to fulfill part. This is like, this is right up there with the virgin having a baby. He says this, and all peoples on earth will be what? All people on earth will be what? Blessed through you. And Abraham really had no idea of the scope of this promise. He had no idea where this was gonna go. But literally the promise in this moment is, Against all odds, I mean against all odds, one day, every nation, every tribe, every culture, every ethnic group, Abraham, through you and what I'm gonna do, the world, the generations are gonna be blessed and they're gonna be better off because of you. In a ancient world where nobody even had heard of that. Nations did not bless nations. There was no humanitarian aid, no Red Cross in the ancient world. You plundered, you enslaved, there was corruption, there was conquering, but nobody blessed anybody else. And what you have to understand is thousands of years later, the promise for us is like, yeah, yeah, I get that. The promise was unheard of in an ancient world. That Abraham, I'm gonna do this through you and through your family. And Abraham's thinking, how can I believe that? How in the world is that gonna happen? How in the world could God fulfill that through one old dude in history that somehow that's gonna happen? And yet, as you're gonna see, with all of Abraham's dysfunction, with all the junk that happens in his family line, with everything that happens historically through the nation where you would think God should just give up on, somehow Abraham was able to believe God and believe that somehow God would do it in spite of him. So maybe you know the story, Abraham, I mean, miraculously, because when the promise was made, it was still a little while before, um, you know, Abraham is involved in the conception of a son, and Abraham has Isaac. And then Isaac eventually has Jacob. And you know why Jacob shows up in the family tree that eventually would link to the story of Christmas? because he deceived and lied to his dad and his older brother Esau. And so Esau doesn't even show up because he actually stole his inheritance from his brother. And so Jacob is the one that shows up in the story. Jacob is the one that's a part of the lineage in the story that ultimately brings a savior. And then during the same time, Pharaoh or um, Abraham is traveling with his wife and he ends up in Egypt with Pharaoh. 
And he's afraid that Pharaoh is gonna take his wife, Sarah, to be a part of his harem. And so he just straight, straight up lies. He's like, oh, she's my sister. And all, just offers his wife up multiple times, not knowing what's gonna happen or trying to save his butt because he's afraid of what Pharaoh might do and just lies and completely doesn't have his wife's back. All the while, you know, his sons have already gone through this whole thing where the birthright is stolen, the inheritance is stolen. The entire thing is a mess. And again, if you're God and you're on the outside, you're like, maybe I should have picked somebody else. And yet eventually, like things continue and Jacob has 12 sons. And I don't know, again, I don't know if you know the story. He has 12 sons. I mean, again, the fact that he had a son is amazing. Eventually 12 sons, it's a large family. And then the family multi-generational dysfunction just continues because they sell their oldest brother into slavery. This is where I just, I wanna just pause for a second. I, I get it. Some of you, you got family drama, you got family dysfunction, it's gonna be a tough Christmas season, you're not really looking forward to dinner on Christmas day, and here's the only encouragement maybe you'll get from the Christmas story, it could be worse. Like this could be your family. And so there they are, they got 12 sons, and eventually those sons migrate to Egypt, and those 12 sons miraculously become a nation. And so after hundreds of years, you're thinking, well, maybe this is it, where, I mean, Abraham had a son, and that, those, those sons multiplied, and they grew, and they became a nation, and yet the moment they become a nation, they become a nation of slaves. Then for the next, I mean, hundreds of years, they would be a slave nation, and they're not being blessed, and they're not able to bless anybody else, and nobody is better off because of them. They are enslaved, mistreated, oppressed, and I'm telling you, at this moment in history, Everybody had given up on God's promises. And then Moses enters the story. And Moses is the great deliverer and he goes toe to toe with Pharaoh in Egypt and eventually the great deliverer through these miraculous signs that God gives him. He delivers the Israelite people out of 400 years of Egyptian, of Egyptian slavery and enslavement. But when Pharaoh or when Moses leads them out of Egyptian captivity under Pharaoh, they do not feel blessed. They're led into the wilderness. They basically wander in the Middle East, in the middle of nowhere, and they feel like God has forgotten them. God gave up on the promise. God is never gonna come through, and it is over for them. And maybe you know the story. This is where all the Old Testament war and bloodshed and violence happens. They go into, the Can into Canaan, across the Red Sea, into the Canaanites. And I love this story because the Canaanites are like, we don't want you. You, not only are you not a blessing, you, I think you're a curse and whatever God promised you, I think God called an audible because it's obvious it's not happening through this nation. You guys are nomads, you're wanderers, your God in the eyes of other nations is pathetic. It's just not happening through you and yet all of this, this wandering and bloodshed and violence, everybody had given up on God's promises. Now here's a quick side note for some of you who are kind of grappling with some of this stuff and I'm gonna go back to the story. This is the part of the Old Testament and I totally get this. If you're, you're struggling with this stuff, is it real? A lot of the obstacles is the whole idea of bloodshed and violence and needless war in the Old Testament and how could God allow that? So let me just give you something to consider. It requires a lot more than this, but I'm gonna give you this in a minute. What you see is so over the top and violent was normal in that culture. But more than that, Old Testament violence Old Testament war, the bloodshed, all the things we look at, it is not an argument for or against the existence or the goodness of God. It simply reflects a culture without God. 
a culture that even, you say this for yourself, even among the pantheon of gods, what we think is normative and is normal, especially in Western culture, was not normal in the ancient world. It was unheard of. Nobody saw people as having intrinsic value. Nobody saw people as equal. As you've heard me say, there was even a caste system among the gods. Nothing was equal. People weren't valued. The gods didn't value people. It was unheard of. And so what we see as violent and over the top and unnecessary, the only reason we feel that way is because we are on the other side of the message of Christmas and we are on the other side of the birth of a savior that came to the world and he introduced an ethic that was unknown to the Roman world, unknown to the Greek world, unknown to ancient culture before that. He introduced an ethic that eventually would change the world and it would change how we think even if we don't acknowledge the source of that change. Because for some of you, I just want to talk to you for saying you're a skeptic. I just want you to consider this for, for a moment. The very arguments that you use against the existence and goodness of God, you are aware of because of God. The very thing that is your roadblock to considering that maybe God is real and God is good, you only are aware of because of what Jesus introduced into the ancient world as a baby in a manger. So back to the story, a thousand years go by and eventually, against all odds, that nation becomes a kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. And David becomes the king. And David ends up being known as the warrior king and he defeats all of Israel's um, enemies on every side and they become the world power. And the first time everybody's leaning in to think, I mean, we didn't think this would ever happen, but it looked like God's going to fulfill his promise. And then Solomon becomes king. He's the third king of Israel. And there is wealth and there is prosperity and there is power and it's the golden age of Israel. And at that moment, everybody that knew the prophecies and the promises is leaning in to go, this is the moment that God has teed it up and God's gonna do everything that God promised to do. But he didn't. And in fact, Solomon ends up marrying all of the daughters of the enemies around them and worshiping their gods. And God had chosen this nation to do something specific in history and to ultimately offer a Messiah. And so God basically fulfills another promise that if you do this, Solomon, I'm gonna divide the kingdom. I'm gonna destroy the temple. But by the way, I'm gonna do something better than the temple eventually anyway. And so God does and their best opportunity to see God fulfill that promise was over. And their nation was divided, and their kingdom was divided, and their economy was divided. And 300 years later, in around 750 BC, now there's two split kingdoms, and they are decimated. The northern kingdom, Israel, is being overrun and overthrown by Assyria, and the southern kingdom is on the verge of being conquered. And just go with me for a second. In 1,200 years after the promise to Abraham that God's gonna bless the world and fulfill his promise in a unique way. There the northern and southern kingdom is about to be decimated, divided in every way. And into that chaos, God sends a prophet by the name of Isaiah and he says this in Isaiah 49, six, with all of that as the backdrop, God says, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles. And again, if you're living at that time, you're going, no, 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 you're not. We're a joke. We're decimated. Our kingdom is in ruins. And again, God's like, no, no, I'm gonna make you a light to the Gentiles that you may bring salvation. And they're like, we can't even save ourselves. What are you talking about? And God's like, just trust me. I know it's been 1,200 years of waiting and it's never looked worse. I'm gonna make you a light to the Gentiles. I'm gonna bring through you salvation to the ends 
of the earth. And Isaiah delivers that prophecy and they're immediately captured and overrun by the Assyrians. And they go through another 300, I mean, I know I'm unpacking it in two minutes, 300 years of more chaos. And eventually the Babylonians overthrow their city and they conquer their temple and they export and exile all of their best leaders. I mean, there is nothing left of this nomad family that grew to a nation, that grew to a kingdom, that eventually was the world power and God was gonna do something and now there is nothing left. And there's no way it seems that God could do anything through them. And so 400 years later, God shows up again in the midst of all that chaos, all that dysfunction, all that messiness with basically nothing left through another prophet, Malachi. And I'm just telling you, what Malachi says is ridiculous. With all of that in mind, he says, God says, my name is gonna be great among the nations. And again, they're like, no, it won't. Would you stop with the hype? Zeus's name is gonna be great. Like Babylon's name is gonna be great. They're the world power. You're not gonna be great. We're pathetic. We're laughed at. We can't protect ourselves. What do you mean your name is gonna be great among the nations? Are you seeing us? From the rising to the setting of the sun in every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought by my name. Basically, in all the generations, wherever people worship, just mark it down, there's gonna be a bunch of people worshiping me. And then he ends with, because my name will be great among the nations and they had to have been rolling their eyes, says the Lord Almighty. Because there was no way at this point in history that God was gonna be able to do anything through the descendants of Abraham to bless the whole world or make the whole world better off. Israel eventually was conquered by the Babylonians and then the Persians conquered them and then the Greeks took their turn and then in 63, BC, we're talking hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, and we're waiting and we're praying, and we heard what Malachi said, but God, where are you at? And Pompey defeats Israel once again, this time through Roman rule. And in fact, history tells us that, that Pompey wanted to make an example out of the nation of Israel. He wanted to humiliate them, and so he rides his horse into the temple and he desecrates the thing. Basically, as this announcement to the rest of the world that Jupiter is more powerful than Yahweh. And he rides in and he empties what they would call the God vault in ancient history. And he desecrates and he humiliates them. And there they are completely in ruins, embarrassed. All the world knows there is nothing left of the nation of Israel. And yet God had fulfilled one thing. A family became a nation that became a kingdom. But the incoherent impossible, kind of unbelievable promise ended right there. There was no way that the Jews were ever gonna be a light to the world. There was no way that all the nations would be blessed. And there is no way that they could have seen into history and believed that the Jewish God would be worshiped at all. And this is why I wanted to talk about this, and this is why this story is so unbelievably remarkable, and this is why it matters to you. And this is why you should know the backdrop of the Christmas story that does not begin with a baby in a manger, because when everybody had given up hope in God's promises, when literally God pushed it all the way to the point where the promise to Abraham was out of reach, and everybody gave up hope. God moved. 
In fact, I love what Paul writes, that when the set time had fully come, meaning when God had everything just the way he wanted it after hundreds of years of waiting, when God decided it was time, basically when the world had gotten to the, to the place where finally there was a, an exporting of a common Greek and Roman language, when the culture had finally gotten to the place where now there is peace between civilized nations, when the world had finally gotten to the place where there was a highway system that connect major um, population hubs to the civilized world, when finally in history, and this is the first time, there was a mechanism for God to get the message out to the entire world, when the set time had fully come, God moved. But when everybody had given up hope, when nobody believed the promises anymore, and when nobody was expecting it, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, to a town in Galilee, to a virgin who's pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. By the way, the David that slept with another man's wife and then killed him. And by the way, the guy that's a part of a family line of Abraham that just offered up his wife to save his own butt. And by the way, a part of a family where, where you know, Jacob steals the birthright from Esau. And by the way, a part of a nation that over and over again is filled with disbelief and dysfunction and embarrassment. Like that whole family line, God comes to the descendant of David, to a virgin whose name was who? And here's why I say that, because you take this for granted. 2,000 years later, because nobody could have predicted it in the moment. How in the world do you know her name? He came to a virgin by the name of Mary. And the angel went to her and said, greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. You have found favor with God. And you will conceive and you'll give birth to a son and you will call him Jesus. And he will be great, just as Malachi said, just as Isaiah said, just the way God said at the very beginning when he came to one man, Abraham, against all odds to say, I am making you an in spite of promise and nothing is gonna stop it. And the Lord will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob. Yeah, the Jacob who lied and deceived and basically wronged his brother in the worst imaginable way. He's a part of the family line. Descendants forever and his kingdom will never end because God made an in spite of promise. And what you can't imagine, what I can't imagine, and what nobody in the moment could have imagined as all of this is taking place in kind of this no-name city in Bethlehem, nobody could have imagined that this moment punctuated that God, in fact, keeps his promises. That 2,000 years and 40 pregnancies later, God would finally show up to Abraham to fulfill the promise, he would finally reveal through Abraham the person who would fulfill every single one of those in spite of promises and the person who would ultimately bless the entire world. And it turned out that through Israel, the world would be blessed. That one day in every continent, every language, in every generation, the Jewish God would be worshiped. 
It turned out that those nomadic, dysfunctional, messy beyond what you can believe people, that they would be a light to the entire world. And here's what I wanna say to you to, to try to put this in context as best I can and then don't miss next week. Whether you realize it or not, whether you buy into the whole God thing or not, you're still trying to figure it out. It, it really, this, this point doesn't matter. Here's what is true, that 2000 years later, God fulfilled his promises. And even if you don't give God any thought, you have been blessed by the birth of a savior in a manger in Bethlehem 2000 years ago. And you maybe don't even realize it. Because for many of us, the very things that we hold to, they did not exist in the ancient world until that baby showed up. The ethic of generosity that so many of you hold to, to go, I don't even not sure where this has come from. I don't know if I believe in God, but I just know this is right. Just so you know, in the ancient world, they didn't think that was right. It was might made right, not generosity. The, the whole idea to show kindness and love to other individuals in, the West, in our Western culture, that's just like, yeah, everybody holds that. You don't need to believe in God. No, no, once upon the time, that wasn't true until a baby showed up in a manger. The whole idea that every individual has intrinsic worth, you just believe that, don't you? Nobody in the first century just believed that. Nobody believed that marginalized people had value. Nobody believed that women and children had extraordinary worth, that everybody was on an equal plane. Nobody believed in the fact that we should do good to other people, even if they don't do good back to us. It was a baby in a manger that had been promised and prophesied for hundreds of years that showed up, that offered a new world system and a new value system that nobody had ever heard of before. And whether you recognize it and whether we recognize it or not, that baby in a manger that was the fulfillment of all of those in spite of promises has impacted and affected your worldview forever. That 2,000 years later, we're different because of what happened. That every nation and every generation has been impacted. Because God keeps his promises. And I say all of that to communicate this to you. Because this is where it intersects with your life. And this is where it's a big deal. And this is where you have to do it justice and not just show up in this airbrush storybook of goats and donkeys and a baby in a manger. The story is bigger than that. For some of you, you're in a place right now where you, in some ways you feel like God has made you a promise. And it's not a promise that everything is gonna work out perfectly because I, and maybe you feel that, but God actually never promised that. I mean, one of the, maybe the comforts, I don't know if this is a comfort to you, that is throughout the scripture, people with extraordinary faith, more faith than any of us have, ended up not having things work out the way that they want. And it didn't mean that God had abandoned them. But for some of you, maybe the promise is, I'm walking through a really dark season and I feel like God has promised to get me to the other side and I don't know how I'm gonna make it to the other side. Or some of you have so much doubt crashing around and yet you don't doubt the authenticity of that moment where you believed it was true. And now you wonder, am I ever going to be able to maintain faith in light of those doubts? Some of you have an adult kid walk away and it hasn't been for lack of prayer and you don't know if they're gonna come back. And you're just struggling. Is God going to come through. And what I want to say to you is in this moment where God just doesn't seem active and God doesn't seem to be answering your prayers and God does not seem to be involved is not the time for you to abandon God. That all throughout history, when the promise seemed out of reach, 
when God seemed like he had given up, when nobody's prayers had been answered lately, God moved. And he would say to you, listen, I get it. You're tempted to give up on me. But the reason that you should not give up on me is because I have not given up or abandoned you. Do not walk away. And sometimes walking away is not saying I don't believe. Sometimes walking away is, it is so difficult and I'm not sure how God's gonna come through that I'm gonna reach for some self medicating mechanisms to dull the the pain, or I'm just gonna kind of ignore God for a season and reach for something else. And God is pleading with you. I get how it looks. I understand how silent I feel. I understand that you've been waiting for a decade. Do not abandon me. Do not give up faith. Do not give up hope. And then for others of us, we're in the category of it is just messy. And you didn't even create some of the mess, but it is messy all the same and there is dysfunction and maybe more than ever you're just reminded of some of the disappointment you're reminded of some of the loneliness and some of it caught you by surprise because this is not what you expected now for some of you it's just the dysfunction and some of the dysfunction you did create and you just start to wonder and what I want to say to you before we're done is just this that God has made you some in spite of promises And some of the promises that God has made you in the midst of whatever you're going through, whether you created it or whether somebody else created it, I will not leave you or forsake you. I will finish whatever I started in your life. That my love is not based on your worthiness or your performance. It wasn't with Abraham. It wasn't with Jacob. It wasn't with the nation of Israel. It wasn't with David. It wasn't with all the misfits and crazy characters of the New Testament. My message of good news is based on me. I'm the hero of the story. My performance, what I've done. And nothing is ever gonna be able to separate you from my love. You are loved. You are accepted. You are worthy. You are secure in me. And God is gonna finish whatever he started in your life. Do not not give up. I will not leave you or forsake you. And if you are in the midst of a place right now where God seems inactive, God is not act inactive. And if you see, it seems like that God is inattentive. God is not inattentive and God is not apathetic and God is not angry. And the reason you know that is not because of your personal circumstances and not even because of mine, because it is the way of God throughout history that when everybody had given up hope, God moved and you may feel like you're not worthy of that acceptance, that love, that security, God fulfilling that promise. And the reality is you're not, but you were never the basis. God has just made some in spite of promises and God is gonna do it. And at Christmas, it is a reminder when all seems impossible, when everything seems lost, and when you don't know how you're gonna maintain faith through it, you had every reason in the world to not give up because in many cases in that place in that moment where you are most tempted when it seems out of reach but when the set time is just right is when God moves would you pray with me Jesus I just pray that however this hits that in this moment, there is unbelievable confidence in your word that you are rearranging and rewriting stories as I'm delivering these words. And it is not because of me and no power that I have, but because your word is living and powerful. 
So I know for some, it's just a reminder. I know for others, it's just a, this is what I needed today. I know for others, it's bigger than that. This is literally a moment where you are anchoring something in their soul where they will never be the same again. And so I just pray for some of us that the simple invitation and response of, God, I surrender to you. And what that means is when you feel inactive and silent, I'm not gonna abandon you. Because based on what you've done and the good news of the message of Jesus, the message of Christmas, you have not abandoned me. And so God, give us the faith that we need in this moment. And I pray this in Jesus' incredible name. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this message or have been impacted by Centerpoint Church in any way, would you consider helping us out in one of two ways? First, if you would just spread the word, share this message with your friends, family. Maybe you could go rate and review our podcast on your favorite podcast catcher, but this helps us so much more than you know. And secondly, this ministry is supported by people like you through their financial generosity. And so if you've been impacted by any of these messages, would you consider giving to support the mission and vision of Centerpoint to see people reach with the radical grace of Jesus? You can give today on our website at centerpointfl.org. And again, that's centerpointfl.org.